This is an RNZ podcast. Kia ora and welcome to the best of First Up for Wednesday the 9th of June. Call Katrina Batanaho. The podcast link, The Best of First Up, is now available at the usual places, Apple, Spotify, iHeart and Acast. If you're missing the link, do a search on RNZ for the First Up podcast and re-establish the link that way. Right, that business is done. In today's pod, thousands of nurses are going on strike. The Nurses Organisation explains what they want. The Cook Islands travel bubble has businesses booming. And the Chief Ombudsman has raised serious concerns about the state of some of New Zealand's acute care mental health facilities. But first to Fiji, where the country is battling its worst COVID-19 outbreak to date, with 147 new cases in the last two days alone. 681 cases have been recorded since the last outbreak began in April. For the entire year to March, there had only been 70. And now the country's main hospital is essentially cordoned off as a cluster grows there. Our Fiji correspondent, Lethe Mavono, spoke with reporter Ella Stewart to give us the latest. Today is the first day of um, the government's redistributed medical care program in response to the fact that our main hospital, the Colonial War Memorial Hospital, is now uh, effectively shut down from any and all uh, public services, including even the emergency uh, unit. And so uh, they redistributed to uh, a spotting arena, to a ship, and to the eye hospital. So today that's what they've been doing. And what restrictions are currently in place? Um, the restrictions, unfortunately, were listed about uh, a week ago now. So there's uh, movement again and the businesses are reopening uh, it is only the red zones that are actually locked down. So red zones are basically neighborhoods where clusters continue to increase. And so that unfortunately includes um, uh, health facilities such as uh, the main hospital, uh, along with the Ministry of Health, two main buildings that have been closed down. And so it's only the red zones where movement is restricted. Everywhere else, people are beginning to come back to some normalcy. Why not have a full-scale lockdown? That is a, the million-dollar question. That is a question that everyone, including ordinary members of the public, to uh, you know the, the opposition in Parliament, along even with uh, the commercial sector, people are asking why we haven't gone on a full-scale lockdown. But the government has made it clear that they will continue to do what they're calling a targeted lockdown, preferring only to lock down those neighbourhoods, and have hinted at the need to uh, get economic activity restarting. Well, if there was a full-scale lockdown, I suppose people would be unable to work and there's no wage subsidy. What would that mean for people's bank accounts? Well, that is the biggest problem in in the economy right now, and I don't think it's uh, one that was brought on by the pandemic, but it's certainly exacerbated by uh, our all-time high unemployment with uh, the majority of of our economic uh, stimulation coming from uh, global travel. There are more people unemployed now than ever in our history, and there are definitely no wage subsidies uh, uh, 
there is assistance, but you can't really call it that because it's basically people accessing their own superannuation. Uh, there's a little bit of support that's getting rolled out periodically, but not enough to sustain the economy. And so um, as it stands, it's only a list of what they're calling essential services that can operate. Other businesses who are looking to reopen have to obtain what is called a COVID pass. And so, yes, there are lots and lots of people um, that are struggling to put food on the table in Fiji at the moment. And you said the main hospital is essentially cordoned off and completely a COVID-19 care facility now. Tell me about that. And, and what happens to other patients who don't have COVID-19? Where do they go? So the Colonial War Memorial Hospital is the flagship of the of the Ministry of Health um, infrastructure. It's also the biggest hospital in the country, and it looks after the Central Eastern Division, where the majority of our 900,000 population live. In the Central Eastern Division alone, uh, there is about 300,000 to 350,000 people who would ordinarily access emergency services at the Colonial War Memorial Hospital. Now, because it is a lockdown or or rather a containment zone, people who are in it and who don't have COVID-19 cannot leave or be moved to other health facilities. Uh, Everyone in there is effectively staying put. Um, When when the cluster at the hospital was first discovered last week, the government had said that they would continue to operate critical services. So things like the maternity ward, the pediatrics, wards and, and, and also the accident and emergency ward. But now even those services have been redistributed to um, the emergency medical uh, teams that's operating out of uh, a sporting arena. Surgery is now being done on a government uh, ship that is anchored out in the Suva Harbor. And some of it is also um, at other medical facilities around the city. There isn't a doubt that it will have a huge impact on uh, anyone else that's not suffering from COVID-19 trying to access critical medical services. And how are people feeling about everything? People are anxious. There's, there's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of confusion. And it's not helped by the fact that we uh, cannot ask questions off of our leaders. Uh, people are also hugely distrustful um, of the government right now, especially with uh, so many questions left unanswered. And uh, it, there's been a trend now that the high the case count, uh, the less likely the media and the public have of being able to ask questions off of either the medical authorities or the government itself. So there's a lot of anxiety in Fiji at the moment. That was Fiji correspondent Lethe Mavono. Still in the Pacific to the Cook Islands where the burst travel bubble is into its fourth week and it seems business is booming. On First Up we've been talking with Liana Scott who's the GM of the Muri Beach Club Hotel and President of the Cook Islands Tourism Industry Association on and off for the past year as the COVID-19 pandemic forced the islands to shut up shop. And she's kept us up to date with the struggles of the people and what the country's all-important tourist industry have gone through. Our host Nathan Narararere caught up with Liana Scott for an update. Oh, Karana Nathan, I'm really good at the moment. Okay, it's so nice being busy, nice putting on good. the uniform. So no, it's great. Okay, that's those are the words I wanted to hear. Good to hear that you're busy. Tell us about the busy. Mm. 
Um, so, like, when I say busy, uh, <laughs> any tourist makes us busy all of a sudden. But, no, the, um, you know, most of the hotels across the board are doing um, between 40 and 50% occupancy at the moment. And, like, we've just got five flights. Um, this is our first week with five flights. Uh, last week was four flights. Before that was three flights. It's kind of been going up incrementally. And um, we expect uh, 12 flights in July. So that's really positive news. That's fantastic. Are there groups of families yeah. that are coming up, or is it you know couples coming up there for you yeah. know romantic it's, getaways? It's funny. Yes, it's a little bit of everything. In fact, uh, at the hotel on Saturday, we have our first wedding, which is amazing. And what's more amazing than that is that it's a, a group of 32 that have been hanging in there. And she first made her deposit in 2018. And they've delayed, you know, this is, the, I think, third third date they've given us. But they actually hung in there and they're coming and they're getting married on Saturday. So it's, we're so happy for them. But um, the trends are seeing, I know. Wow. <laughs> I was seeing all sorts, like certain families with children um, the trends the industry thing are bigger on island spend so a lot of people either upgrading to that higher room category or spending a little bit more money on the ground with tours and activities rental cars all that sort of thing the other trend is people are spending more and doing aitutaki so I guess you know it's already hard traveling in the first instance so they're certainly making the most of it um, and the last one would probably be the longest days. So 5.9 days or 5.7 days is the average in 2019. And now we're seeing, um, you know, 8, 19, 11, 12 nights days. So certainly people are making the most of that time um, traveling away. It's interesting you mentioned Aitutaki. A friend of mine, I was uh, messaging backwards and forwards with him last night. And he said his wife had booked a mm-hmm. holiday and they were going to the... The cooks on October said, yeah, and we're going somewhere called Aitutaki. Are there hills there I can yeah, hike? And I went, fabulous. I said, why don't you Google image <laughs> no. it? And he just came back with, wow. So, yeah, and yeah. it is a wow. What about, are you seeing any travellers, um, do you think, that are coming through from Australia? Not that we've seen. So we've certainly seen interest out of Australia. We've had a, a few Australian bookings that have been on the books for a while, hanging in there for um, any news of an opening. The other good news that for us, um, and maybe it's a, a little bit of gloat uh, at the moment, because um, we are getting our second um, vaccination this week. So the rollout of the second dose is happening, and we hope to have the whole of Rarotonga vaccinated by the end of the week, and that's can do so we're really happy about that and I think that gives the sense of comfort um, to the Cook Island people that if travellers are coming to the Cooks that they feel a little more safe that they have that had that extra level of protection for sure. That's Liana Scott in Rarotonga. Overcrowded soiled carpets inadequate toilet facilities and patients subject to potentially degrading behaviour. That's how Chief Ombudsman Peter Bosher described the Te Whare Ahuru Acute Care Mental Health Facility in the Hutt Valley, where some of our most seriously unwell patients go to get help. Mr Bosher released reports into three such facilities on Tuesday, two of which he deemed not fit for purpose. The Star One unit on the grounds of Palmerston North Hospital was also criticised for its institutional feel, its lack of facilities and its concerning use of restraints. Meanwhile, the newly built Tiaho Mai unit on the grounds of Auckland's Middlemore Hospital was held up as a fine example of a modern therapeutic environment. Our producer Matthew Tunison asked Mr Bosher to explain the role of these facilities and the sorts of patients they treat. So of these three reports, two deal with acute mental health units. 
They are units when people become seriously unwell and normally that has been reported on and they are required to attend for assessment in this particular part of the hospital. Uh, if they are assessed as being that unwell, a detention order is made and they're required to be there while their acute condition is treated. So A, they're very unwell, B, they're pretty vulnerable, some are suicidal, and thirdly, they're required to be there because of a legal order. Right, okay, so so very uh, very severely ill people uh, in these facilities. And, yes. And uh, Peter, you looked at uh, Te Whare Ahuru in Hutt Valley, Te Aho Mai in uh, Auckland's Middlemore Hospital and Star One in Palmerston North. Two of those were found to be not fit for purpose, essentially, particularly the uh, Hutt Valley unit. Can you tell us what you found there? Yes. Well, I can. And the interesting thing about these three reports is they all deal with quite different situations. And in the case of uh, Te Whare Ahuru and Te Aho Mai, a sharp contrast between the good and the bad. So first of all, dealing with the good Tiaho Mai, that's a, a purpose-built, fairly new facility in Auckland. And what we found about that was it's modern, culturally sensitive, e.g. You, uh, you come into the place through a fuddy-type setting where you're made to feel welcome and you're welcomed in uh, to give you a sense of belonging. Whereas Te Whare Ahuru is old, dirty, soiled and not fit for purpose. Uh, built in 1995, hasn't had any substantial work done since that time. And so what, what my inspectors found were things such as um, soiled carpets, rooms where there had been a fire, the soot still hadn't been cleared away, no privacy for phone calls, there's a de-escalation courtyard that was dirty and covered in graffiti, graffiti on bedroom walls, and one of the things which we found disturbing is really not enough in the way of toilet facilities for service users who who are, after all, very, very vulnerable and who need uh, to be organised much better than is the case. And then dealing with the Palmerston North uh, Services for Treatment Assessment Rehabilitation Unit, that, that's for psychogeriatric uh, service users. And what we found about that was that, you know, this fairly recently relocated building could have been made like the Tiahomai facility. It could have been new, modern, and therapeutic, but instead it's just a bland, non-therapeutic setting, not conducive to the proper treatment and rehabilitation of those who need it. So you'll see this really shows in New Zealand we are capable of good facilities and we're capable of sustaining ones that have had their day. Yeah, and if we could uh, go back to Te Whare Ahuru in the Hutt Valley, um, you also the, the report also mentions uh, over-occupancy and people um, having to use uh, sort of seclusion rooms as, as bedrooms. Is it still overcrowded? Yes, absolutely it is. And the interesting thing about overcrowding, it can be said, well, surely if there are a number of patients coming in, that's the natural consequence. But, but it's not necessarily. We found with Te Ahumai that they manage their patient flow ideally, whereas uh, with um, Te Whare Ahuru, when you've got, and I keep 
getting back to the type of people that are there, they're already fragile and vulnerable. And when they're being put in very stark seclusion rooms because they've run out of bedrooms, it's and bearing in mind that they haven't done anything wrong, they are there because they're ill, it's not reflective at all of good practice. Mm. Now, I think um, referring to the Star One uh, Palmerston North facility uh, refers to an institutional feel, which I, th I think probably also relates to the Hutt Valley uh, unit. Um, is there a sense that you know these feel more like detention centres rather than you know hospitals where people come to get better? You, you're absolutely right. That that's exactly what we are saying. And when you think about the poor state of the Lower Hutt facility. I, I wouldn't mind placing a bet that you'd be hard-pressed to find any part of a mainstream hospital facility as poorly presented and resourced as this. That the sort of places where the public come in and out of regularly, DHB seem to me to be willing to keep modern and keep clean. For some reason, these ones fall off their radar. In our previous uh, budget, there was a big focus on mental health, and I guess what we're looking at here is the most, uh, you know, acute end of uh, of mental health care in New Zealand. It's, it's um, I guess, doesn't doesn't reflect too well on um, the way the system is working when these institutions aren't aren't functioning as they should. Yes, well, my, my role as designated by Parliament is to ensure that those in detention are treated according to minimum standards of a UN convention. It's called the Optional Protocol of Crimes Against Torture, which sounds uh, a fairly heady sort of topic. But what the convention does is require New Zealand to maintain a standard that it's proud of in terms of world standings. So we're number one in the world for our integrity. Uh, but you can't have your cake and eat it. If we're going to herald ourselves as the most civilised, the most modern, and the best at how we treat our vulnerable, we are not doing the right thing by the vulnerable in the mental health sphere. So successive reports of mine have highlighted these inadequacies, and it's my job to shine a light and to keep saying what I'm saying until we see the minimum standards being raised to what's acceptable. That was Chief Ombudsman Peter Bosher. Around 3,000 of the country's nurses will take part in an eight-hour strike today, Wednesday, to demand better pay and conditions at work. Nurses will picket outside hospitals around the country from 11am to show their displeasure with the government and district health boards after nurses rejected the latest offer on Monday. The DHBs are assuring the public that essential health services will remain available. Nathan asked the NZNO's Industrial Services Manager, Glenda Alexander, what the nurses want? Basically it's pretty simple. They, they want to have reasonable workloads and they want to have pay that reflects the value of the jobs they do. When you say reasonable workloads, can you just talk us through? Because maybe people don't don't understand this. What is a you know give, give us a, a normal nurse in a hospital's workload if there is a normal one? Well, that, yeah, that's exactly the question. I mean, you know, nursing. I was listening to your previous speaker, but nursing in um, health is around you know 
adapting to and changing to the demand that comes in through the door. So you can start off a shift thinking, oh, this is going to be a good shift today because I've got, you know, the right, you know, two or three patients or four patients, whatever it is, and I can give them the very best of care. Then something will happen, more admissions or, you know, the person will become unwell, you know, more acute, and the dynamic shifts. The problem is that our system can't adjust to that um, variance in the workload. So what happens is nurses end up increasing their workload as the day goes by or the shift goes by and um, there's just not the capacity there for them to then adapt to that and be able to um, address the needs of those patients and often they start off a shift with already the workload of before them for the shift being really over the top, you know, too many people, too much to do. So, you know, that's okay on a one-off basis but when that happens day on day, shift on shift, you know, they just don't have the capacity to cope with that relentless pressure. And so it's not a good place to work when you worry about, oh, did I remember to do this? Can I do that? You know, you know the patient might want to um, share something or talk to you about their worries, but you just haven't got time. And that, that's not the way we should be looking after people. I know. Look, I know it's not just down to dollars, but if we just go with that just for now because that's maths yeah. is easier. How far away is your union from what the DHB have offered? Well, you know, they offered us 1.38% on the base rates. They also offered a lump sum payment of $900 for some of the members across this collective agreement. We uh, represent members who are healthcare assistants, enrolled nurses, registered nurses, and right up to and including senior nurses. So the senior nurses uh, were not offered anything other than a $900 lump sum and the rest of the nurses were offered an equivalent of roughly 1.38% on the base rate. The latest offer, they offered us a $4,000 lump sum payment that was a part payment of what we hope to see the pay equity settlement come to. That pay equity settlement is not concluded. We don't even know how much that is going to be yet. But we believe it's going to be within the vicinity of the percentage increase that we have been asking for at least. And that's why when running out of patience, no pun intended, we just um, decided that that's what we should put on the table. Yeah. You know, can, conditions-wise now, uh, moving to this, because this is, I guess, the, the much harder one there to uh, define. I mean, gosh, with, with this pandemic that's going on around the world, we see the importance of, of our all of our medical staff there as well. If the nurses' conditions aren't improved in our healthcare system, could we be left vulnerable should there be a further outbreak in New Zealand? Oh, look, I think I think there's already a vulnerability without even thinking about a bad pandemic. It's um, about... You know, we've got people leaving the country already who have just said, I've had enough, I'm going to give up, I'm going to move on. And, you know, we, we talked yesterday to some Australian recruiters. They are aggressively targeting our nurses for Australia. They've got staffing shortages in Australia too, but they've got correspondingly really good conditions. Things that our nurses, you know, would aspire to here, like, you know, decent superannuation payments and so forth. So, you know, it's very attractive, um, better staffing levels, so... Why would you stay? Um, and so, indeed, we're we're vulnerable to a pandemic, but we're vulnerable to the everyday health needs of this country. I already see uh, on the good old Facebook. There's a lot of people with the I support the nurses uh, that's that's going yeah. on around. So you've obviously got a a good groundswell from the public who are very appreciative of of what you guys do for us and what you do. 
your optimism level that something could be worked out or what sort of timeline? How are you feeling about that? Well, I always believe something can be worked out. So I think I think what it has to do is um, this, this was an opportunity, I think, for nurses to, to actually talk with the public of New Zealand to, to allow them to get their message across because, you know, in, in bargaining in a, in a process like this, both sides have their positions. So the nurses really wanted, our members really wanted to get out there the, the real state of play because, you know, they cover it up. You know, people still tell us every day how much they respect the nurses, you always see letters to the editor saying, just been in the hospital, the nurses were wonderful. They are wonderful, but they need to be recognised in, in more ways than, you know, as, as we said during the pandemic, a clap doesn't pay the mortgage. So, you know, we really would love it if we can find a solution and we don't have to um, keep, you know, fighting for decent pay and that we can get on and do the jobs that um, we want to do. Glenda Alexander from the NZNO. Thanks for listening to The Best of First Up. Matewa.